Well, hello, everybody. Good day, good morning, good evening, depending on where you're listening from, watching from. Thank you for joining us. This is the second of our JMIB uh, webinar Zooms. The first was, uh, of course, on that thorny topic of the premature oxidation of the whites. And this one is uh, <clears throat> going to be the start of a series looking at individual parts of Burgundy and how they're changing. So it'll be talking about both the vineyards and the people. There's been a, a, a thread on a well-known bulletin board uh, talking about uh, the relative importance of terroir and producer. And of course, they're both crucial. I think most of us choose the wines we're gonna drink by producer first, but at the same time, we have favorite terroirs. And it may be true now with global warming that some of those terroirs are actually changing in character. So one thing I hope to do during this series is to take a look at the various different um, vineyard areas and uh, individual vineyards even, and we can work out which ones were fantastic, exactly what we wanted and maybe are at risk now, and which other ones we perhaps ignored in the past and should be paying more attention to. We're also going to take a little bit of a look at the producers. Uh, obviously, we can uh, mention the established classics but which people are bounding up in the world and joining the superstar category, and which other people are maybe just starting out, but are good people to watch and uh, a place where you may be able to get exciting wine at a relatively low price still. So <clears throat> I, what I thought we would do is start at the northern end of the Cote de Nuit. We won't necessarily continue in a straightforward geographic pattern thereafter. We might jump around a little bit to vary the pace, but uh, this evening we're gonna start in the outskirts of Dijon and go through uh, Marsnay, Fissin, Gervais-Chambotin, Moray-Saint-Denis, probably stop at Moray, I'll see how the time goes. We might include Chambol this week as well. Right, so that's the background because it's a little bit earlier than we normally do. I'm actually uh, drinking a cup of tea rather than having a glass of wine, but it's a, a I was gonna say single vineyard. Uh, it's a single estate Darjeeling first flush from 2020. And the other thing which I will perhaps try to do as we go along is uh, bring in a few tidbits about what's happening with the 2019s, which I'm just beginning to taste, and also <coughs> how the 2020 growing season is going. So uh, I see a couple of people are now putting messages on the, on the chat. Uh, please feel free to do that all the way through. If you are drinking wine, let us know what you're drinking, where you've, where you've come from, and uh, just keep comments going throughout this hour. Uh, and ask questions. If there's a question you particularly want answered, then put it on the Q&A section. Um, and if you're not sure, then mention in the chat, uh, ask how to do it, and we will let you know. Grand, okay. So the Cote de Nuit, uh, we're going to start up in the city of Dijon. I was gonna start with Marcenet, and I thought, but no. There is uh, a place called the Cote Dijonaise, and that's a general term for it, which really covers just a few individual vineyards scattered around. There's even one that's planted in the uh, airport, Dijon airport, I suppose, maybe I should call it an airfield rather than an airport, um, because a previous uh, commandant, as it's a, a military airport as well as a, a commercial one, uh, loved wine and so he decided there was a, a patch alongside the runway that might be good for a vineyard. And I understand that they're actually gonna build on that and uh, do even more. There are some up on the heights uh, just north of Dijon, um, Domaine Morte, for example, 
uh, has some good Pinot up there, which I enjoy. Um, and there are, there are several either just in or on the outskirts of Dijon. But now somebody has developed um, an interesting domain, Domaine de la Croix. Um, it's existed, in fact, I think since the 1980s, but it had fallen pretty much out of favour. But they put a youngster in charge. And Scott, if we can have the picture of the Côte Dijonais is up, that would be great. Um, they have planted a bit of Pinot, a bit of Chardonnay, I think some Manigotte, maybe some Gamay. And uh, here you can see it now on the screen. Uh, so we have got, uh, we're on the plateau just south and fractionally west of Dijon. And then through that particular hole in the plateau, you can see down to the city itself. And what you can see from that is that there is almost no topsoil. It's straight on the rock, straight on the limestone. And uh, I think there are some quite interesting, wacky, funky wines being made there because Mark Soyer, who's the guy in charge, is very much into the low sulfur, um, pretty much natural style of winemaking. And he does some quite fancy labels as well as more classic ones. But uh, we will see a little bit of planting in offbeat places like this, because there's precious little left that can be planted in the classical uh, vineyards of the Côte d'Or. Thanks uh, for that, that picture. So we'll move instead to um, Massenet. Take a look at the Massenet map. And breaking news is that they have just increased the size of the Marcinet vineyard quite substantially by a whole 80 hectares. And um, uh, here we come with the Marcinet map. Yes, thank you. If we can increase the size of that, that's great. Um, you will see several colours here. You've got the grey, which is actually the um, buildings because Marcinet has become an overspill from Dijon. And there was a period when it looked as though most of the vineyards were going to get eaten up and turned into housing estates. Um, then you've got this light maroon uh, colour, which up to now has only been allowed for Marcinet Rosé, because you may remember that Marcinet has the appellation for all three colours, is unique in Burgundy for that. And uh, what I will do actually is I should uh, take control of the map so I can actually um, <clears throat> show you what's going on. And um, as well, so these vineyards, which are, were just Marcinet Rosé, I suspect are now going to be allowed to make Marcinet. Plus, if we were to go off to the right, uh, I hope that you can see, let me annotate, and then I can check. If you can see my annotation, I will know that it's all working. If we can see here, where that little arrow is showing, if we headed off to the right there, we would come to um, a vineyard called Le Chapitre, and after that, another one called Montrecule, uh, or Montrecule, and they have both been upgraded from Bourgogne and put into the Marcinet Appellation. In fact, Chapitre is on a really good bit of terroir, and frankly, when they make Marcinet Premier Cruise, which is the next topic, uh, that's been in the pipeline for at least 10 years now, they're still not quite there, but when that happens, then uh, so we will get um, uh, a number of these vineyards promoted to Premier Cru, and frankly, they won't do it straight away because it's too recent, but uh, uh, Le Chapitre uh, should be one of them. So the Premier Cru's, I'm going to switch tool, um, are in uh, several areas. First of all, there's up here, there is uh, the future Premier Cru's, I should say. There is uh, Champerdry, uh, this one here is going to be a Premier Cru. Um, 
next to it. Why has that disappeared? I don't know. Uh, let me switch to a smaller. Sean Pedri is going to be a premier crew. Chloe is going to be a premier crew, and it's going to grab a little bit of the vineyard next door. Um, then we're going to move over to Champ Solomon will be a premier crew. Uh, quite a few here. Saint-Jacques, Favier, uh, Grastet, whoops down there, uh, Charmeau Pret and Le Boivin. So all included your all this sector here is going to be premier crew. And finally, Les Echezeaux, even though it's high up here, they're going to have to change the name because Echezeaux won't be allowed. It's too similar, obviously, to the Grand Cru. So they're going to call it Ez, one word, and then Chezeaux, spelled differently, one word. And all the way through here, through the Longrois, uh, through Claude Duwire, which is arguably the best vineyard of all, and back around, on Mont Chenevoir, will just become part of Longrois. Uh, and on Montaigne is going to be included too. Voila. So that lot, they will be premier crews. So they're all around the same contour line and on, on fairly similar soils. There are variations in the soil, but they're mostly different forms of, uh, uh, of, of classical limestone, such as you would see in other, other villages. So um, that's uh, roughly what's going to be happening here in, uh, in Marcenay. Because of this project, there are um, there is more interest being shown in Marcenay, and there are more growers doing quite exciting things. So, um, for example, um, the classic name, I suppose, in Marcenay, and that's partly because he's got vineyards up and down the coat, including um, in uh, Champagne Clay de Bears, lovely Savigny Domino, Bon Mar, all over the place, really. Uh, is Bruno Clare. So he, he's, he's the one who uh, would be most people's leader for Marcenay. He's got several good cuvées of Marcenay. Uh, but alongside him, we've got lots more uh, slightly less well-known growers, but they're, they're getting better known. And I would uh, particularly cite Sylvain Patay, who is partly a consultant enologist to others and partly uh, a grower in his own right. And he's, he, he's, he's a wild child, hair all over the place, but very, very sound and solid in terms of how he manages the wine. He's pushing a number of boundaries in terms of vinification techniques. Uh, he's one of the few who's crushing his red grapes. Uh, he does whole bunch, but crushing the grapes, which is really quite interesting and gives something that's really very heady. Uh, right, we seem to have got the map back up with all my slightly weird uh, drawings on them. Um, we can kill that if you like now, Scott, and we'll um, go to maybe show the map of a couple of the pictures of a couple of the producers. Sylvain Patai is doing several different single vineyard aligotes, and uh, alongside that is a chap called Laurent Fournier, who is a good friend of Sylvain Patai. Here, uh, our picture here is uh, Bruno Claire, and he's looking, I mean, he's Bruno and his, uh, uh, I'll call him sidekick, slightly unfair, uh, Philippe Brun, who's been his right hand man for. 35 plus years now. Um, they are coming towards retirement. I think uh, two of uh, Bruno's sons are interested in getting involved, already are working there, uh, and Philippe will retire too. But here's an excited looking Bruno, just taken last year, showing the geo geological map, not of Marseille, but of Chevrolet Champetain. He's been very excited. His fingers on Latricia Champetain, even though he doesn't have any of that. Um, but something that we're going to be able to do increasingly is put alongside, as that picture shows, the vineyard maps 
Uh, you can see the bit below in various different colors of red and, uh, and purple. Those are the different vineyards of Chauvry-Chambertin, and then above it is the geological breakdown. So we're going to see more of that. Um, and behind Bruno is a little wooden egg um, for him to, uh, I think the Marcinet is made in, in, in that and in bigger wooden ovals called food. Okay, so uh, then he, so if he's established, then uh, Sylvain Petit and Laurent Fournier are the new guys coming up. They're not uh, alone in this, um, but Laurent Fournier is also doing single vineyard aligotos. He doesn't have a huge domain, but he makes maybe 35 different wines. He constantly is experimenting with slightly different terroirs, different ways of doing it. And you can't necessarily see from that, but he has big barrels uh, up to, mostly he's working with 600 litre barrels. It means he can afford to renew his barrels quite uh, frequently, but without too strong an oak effect. So um, I'm getting thirsty with my cup of tea, but just having a look on the chat on the side, uh, see what everybody else is, uh, um, is, uh, is going for. Um, uh, Howard, you're, it's not Domaine de la uh, de Croix, that's down in Bone, it's Domaine de la Croix, C-R-A-S, um, and his name is Mark Soyer. He's been there, I think, since about 2014, 2015. Um, and uh, goodness me, I'm actually going to have some uh, something from uh, from Jean Richard I'll tell you about it a bit later on. But I'd like to be with you, David, drinking on Denis Bachelet, Jean Richard in 2000, or with Lee, who's tucking into Sylvie Emmanin's Fievi in Chevrolet 2010. Various other people pulled out some nice stuff. Good news. Um, so other people in Marcinet, um, what's interesting is that lots of them are doing many, many different single vineyard bottlings, partly in the hope that their vineyards will become um, <laughs> premier crews. Uh, they're going to be 14 premier crews if it all goes ahead. But it's Laurent, um, the chap in the picture there, who's been in charge of the dossier. And he's still got some hair, but I know he's been putting it out by the roots because it has been quite fraught uh, getting where he, he wants to be. Uh, another domain domain, Bar, B-A-R-T, who are cousins of Bruno Claire's, uh, is really good. Uh, like him, it's got some Chambertin, Claire de Bears, and some Bon Mar, but also they make eight or ten different single vineyard cuvées of Marcinet, and uh, there's some exciting stuff there. Um, young Cyril Audouin of domain Charles Audouin uh, is up there. Um, uh, Bernard Bouvier, domain René Bouvier, and a bigger concern, which wouldn't have been on our radar before, but has really picked up its game, is the Chateau de Marcenet. It's the same ownership as the Chateau de Marceau. Stéphane Follin Arbelet is the, the sort of the big boss in charge of managing it. Um, but they've got a top class um, enologist, stroke winemaker, technical director there. And, uh, and it's really beginning to happen. And they also have at least eight, if not more, single vineyard bottlings of Marcenet. So expect more to come from Marcenet, but I think that's sort of a little bit known. Uh, there's a bit more love given to Marcenet these days and less to Fixin or Fissin, depending on exactly how many. Um, I've just seen Christian's question. Uh, Christian's question. It, there'll be 14 Premier Crews, I understand, for Marcenet. Um, so, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, and you should be able to find the webinar on White Premier Station on our website. Uh, Scott will let you know if that's not the case, but I believe it is. Okay, um, let's take a look at the, the map of Fusain, please. And uh, we can talk about this village. Why is it under, underestimated or at least not much loved? And could that change? 
Right, here comes uh, Fisa. Uh, if we can increase that spread. You see how narrow it is. So um, shaded just to the right is the word Couchet, which is the first village of Marsenay. And off to the left is Brochon, part of which is just Cote de Nuit village and part of which is uh, Chevre Champotin. And you've got the small narrow band of Fisa. And at the top, you've got the, the premier cruise. Um, just need to take control here. Um, not many of them, um, but uh, only three of them are really ever seen. Actually, one of them, though it exists in theory, uh, doesn't doesn't happen. Uh, it's it's all built over. Uh, I don't know if you can see here. This is the one called the Meba. It's supposed to be one and a half hectares. It's officially designated as Premier Cru land, and it's all little bungalows and tiny gardens and mini swimming pools and things like that. Never mind. Um, so the main ones are Les Avelais and Les Avelais, which can just call itself Avelais. If you're in Avelais, you, you can use either name. The reason why you've got different names are because this commune is actually two different villages stuck together in 1860. One is called Fissin and the other is called Fissay, F-I-X-E-Y. And the boundary comes down between these two bits of vineyards. And as so often, when you have one vineyard which should have the same name, this, this cross to um, uh, different parishes, they decide to make the name slightly different. Uh, probably better known are Claude la Perrière, Claude du Chapitre, and this one here, which is called on the map officially Ocheuse, but is known as the Claude Napoleon. And uh, that belongs um, uh, entirely to Domaine Gelin. They bought it in the 50s when it wasn't planted, so they planted it up. They haven't had to replant anything yet. Nice old vines. Claude la Perrière belongs entirely to Domaine Joliet. But uh, in that sense, it's a monopole. But in another sense, um, uh, you will see it from different producers because they also sell off some grapes and wine. And you see Bichot makes a big bottling of Claude La Perrière and um, Joseph Chouin used to. Um, the owner, Benin Jolier, is keen that this should be promoted to Grand Cru because in the 19th century, it was regarded in the same breath as the great Grand Cru's. Um, the wines are good now, but they certainly aren't Grand Cru. It's well worthy of its Premier Cru status. Um, whether the Pinot Noir selection isn't quite good enough, whether some tweaks in the winemaking could happen, I don't know. Um, I do think the wine is good, but I still feel that there's a bit more that could be delivered. Claude du Chapitre is a monopoly of the um, uh, Dufouleur um, family, Domaine Guy and uh, Yvon uh, Dufouleur. And they again make some themselves and they also sell some on. So you'll see quite a few different negociants, some classic ones, and also some of the sort of mini ones like uh, Jean-Nicolas Mayo, Domain Mayo Camusé, uh, with his Mayo Camusé Frère et Sœur, Sœur et Frère um, negociant business. Um, he uh, makes a little bit of this wine. So those are the only premier crews. The village wines, occasionally people pull out a particular vineyard. Um, I'm going to mention just one here. It's called Encomberrois. Uh, it belongs mostly, if not entirely, to the main Bertaux Gerbet. And it's, uh, it actually it sits inside. It looks like an enclave in another bigger village vineyard. But it rises up higher and it's much more like the Premier Cruise Arvelet and Arvelet. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's sold at uh, village price, but it's, it gives you an extra, extra punch. So that's a little one to look out for. And the, uh, the special person in the village now is Amélie Berthaud, daughter of um, uh, Denis Berthaud, 
and uh, his wife was a Gervais from von Romanet. So she has combined those two domains which were separate in the previous generation. She's combined the two, plus they have some um, sharecropping agreements uh, and it's, it's, they've got a wonderful stable. She makes the wines really well. Uh, I actually fell in love in particular with the Clos Vougeot in 2017, which she told me that she had uh, extracted a little bit less than the other wines uh, because she feels that Clos Vougeot can be a bit galumping, a bit massive. Uh, and, uh, and it was my wine or the vintage out of her cellar that year. Um, and it, I'm not suggesting that she really over extracts the others because there's no feeling of that compared to other producers. But I think as time goes by, she gets uh, more relaxed. I think there will be slight lightning up and, and I think the wines will become even better. And I'll mention him now, even though he, he's not making his wines in this cellar, but her husband, Nicolas Faure, I think is one of the really exciting talents. His own domain only has a little bit of village Miss Saint George and most of its generics otherwise, but I love the style. He goes for lots of whole bunch, um, whole cluster fermentation, whereas on the whole, Amelie doesn't. She is more, more in the destemmed camp. Otherwise, the classic domains of the village are Gelin, who I mentioned with the Clos Napoleon, also um, domain Molin. I haven't tasted their wines for a little while. Uh, Amelie says I should be getting around and, and tasting at uh, Philippe Nadef, so another one to look out for. Um, and one which uh, I've, I've seen the name around a little bit, but have no experience of is Clemenceau, that uh, I'm going to try and get there. Um, so, uh, yeah. Hmm. Um, now, why might Fissin be getting better? I think we're going to find this elsewhere up and down Burgundy. But broadly speaking, the characteristic of Fissin, people have said, well, it's a poor man's Chevrichon-Bertin. Uh, the fruit quality doesn't seem to us to be better, and the tannins are, if anything, a bit more rustic. Now, like everywhere in Burgundy, this is a classic clay-limestone mix, but there's quite a lot of clay in the soil, which gives you the firmer wines for the tannins. And it can be quite a humid soil, uh, humid because there are springs uh, bringing water close to the surface. And typically, where you get these sorts of conditions, the structure of the Pinot, physiologically, the grapes don't quite ripen, and you get some slightly harsh tannins. Now, with global warming, we're probably going to warm up the soil, we're going to dry out the soil a bit, and I suspect we're going to see a little bit more refinement, a little bit more class in quite a number of fissas. So it's one of the areas I've got my eye on, I didn't taste widely enough the 2018 vintage. <clears throat> I'll try and do a few more domains in 2019. But this would be a candidate for me of an area that's probably going to benefit rather than suffer from the global warming. Uh, Mark's mentioned these. I, I saw on Seller Trackers uh, that Alain Genier, uh, who does do a, just a few negotiable bottlings, have got some Clodola Peria 15. And uh, 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 that's, that's very interesting. I'd love to hear how that works out. When you say I have some, I assume you mean you've got some in your cellar rather than you're having some tonight. And you've got some in the Encombre too. Great. Keep those messages coming. It's wonderful when we can have a bit of, bit of dialogue going. Grand. Um, so I think that, that probably covers a few sound for us, unless anybody's... I'll just check my questions and see if anyone's asked that. Um, Gabrielle wants to know if a crew has ever been demoted. Not, could it be possible in the future with climate change issues? The only cases in which crews have been demoted is if it's part of the vineyard, if the owner of that part has been a naughty boy, 
um, and has done something like bringing in soil from elsewhere, then uh, it can be demoted. It's happened in Pudini Morache uh, quite a while ago now, I think in the 70s. Um, little bits of Chalumeau and uh, Flatier, I think. Um, a whole crew has never been demoted so far. Uh, I wonder what the mechanism for that would be. The other thing that's happened is a few vineyards which were at village level have been kicked back down to Bourgoin, but that was because when the Appalachians came in, they were given a 50-year tolerance. Uh, we'll see this on a Chauvry-Chambertin map. Some of them said, okay, because you have been calling it Chauvry-Chambertin, we'll let you do it for the future possible life of your vineyard, and after that we'll, uh, uh, after that we'll stop it. So from sort of 1940s to 1990s, a bit of Chauvry-Chambertin were. Um, yes, uh, Ilias mentioned about that for that year, from uh, Dauvinet, it's a bit called On La Richard, and that I think was because the previous, Dauvinet didn't own it then, it was the previous owner, um, Mr. Ropito, who, uh, when they were putting the auto route in, he went down and brought out lots of earth from the auto route and shoved it into his vineyard. Grand, okay. Um, we'll finish with Fisan for a moment and let's move on to Chevrolet Chambertin. You can swap maps, please, Scott. Okay, um, sorry, I see what I've done. My previous, uh, my previous, uh, um, I'm gonna take back the screen. What's happened is that my previous hearts have reappeared on this map. So I'll just try and get rid of those for you. Play around with some brand new hearts. Clear, these go away hearts. Go on, you can do it, you know you can. It's happened, great. Apologies for that. My technical skills, not everything I would like them to be. So Chevrolet Chambertin, I don't know if we can make that map any bigger, Scott, or if that's the, the maximum we can do with it. Uh, but if we can, let's. Um, so coming up next week, on Thursday next week, the 25th, I'm going to be doing a zoom on our friends at 67 pound mile on their, on their bandwidth, uh, which is looking at all the Grand Crus of Chevrolet Champotin, apart from the two big names, Champotin and Claude Bears. But we're going to look at each of the satellite ones and talk about the differences. So I won't go into that now, um, except where it, it, it actually affects our topic. Uh, I hope you can see my, my mouse uh, scurrying around. Um, but if we look at Chevrolet Champotin, the thing that surprises people is to see all these vineyards below the main road. Um, so here you've got your main road coming along here. Uh, and why are the vineyards below? And the answer is uh, because um, we were, uh, when, um, this is what we were talking about just earlier, that some of these vineyards here, Cressonnier and uh, uh, next door also, and a bit of Rossby, uh, these were Chevrolet Chambertin vineyards for about 50 years. The reason they got um, declassified, I mentioned, because they, they sort of ran out of their, their time limit. But if you look up here, um, where my mouse is twiddling backwards and forwards, you have the Combe de Lavo, steep valley, uh, which used to be a watercourse, down which cold air comes, 
but also previously watercourse. It spread out all sorts of soil right across in what the French call a kind of dejection, and I think we call an alluvial fan. And you've got interesting soils which spread out below the main road instead of all just being uh, above it. So that's why you get some shivery down here. These make the lighter shivries on the whole, but there's some interesting um, soil in the uh, Claude Justice, uh, if I can find La Justice, which is just here. Boing, let's give it a heart, why not? Um, that's got an interesting soil which makes wines which uh, uh, last a little bit um, uh, longer. Um, otherwise, I think the most interesting village Chauvry-Chambertins are around here. So we've got Evosel, uh, we've got, uh, which is up here, which arguably probably could be um, a Premier Cru. You can see there's a line of Premier Crus coming around here from the Combe de Laveau. Um, Laveau Saint-Jacques, Clos Saint-Jacques, Castier, Combe Moine, Goulot, Champeau. Probably the reason Eversel isn't a Premier Cru is because it's moved over into the border with the village of Brochon and maybe they didn't want to, uh, to uh, take that uh, deal. Below here you have two called Champ and Enchant, um, there and there. Um, they changed the name because you crossed the border into Brochon. Those are really, really nice vineyards. And this whole sector, Genois as well, um, and uh, probably Ensange. Uh, this sector, I think, is probably the best for uh, village Chauvry Chambertin. Um, there are other individuals which are nice, like Champ Chenise, just below Champ Chambertin, and Ozette Loire. The lower bit's a bit dull, but if you come up in this finger right underneath Criot Chambertin, uh, that's good. And in fact, when I get on to talking about producers, I'll talk about uh, Domaine Durocher, and they have that little finger there, and they also have a number of vines up here in Genois, Champ, and so on. Uh, so, so they're very well looked after. Um, those are the sweet spots then at the moment. And then the Premier Cruise, so they come in several uh, areas. We have Combot here, which if you think about it, it's on the end of the line of the Grand Cruise, and everything beyond is Maurice Saint-Denis Grand Cru. Just one vineyard isn't, it's Combot, but a Combe is uh, a dip, a valley. Combot is just a small one. You can see the way the uh, uh, contour lines up there go. Uh, back up into the hill. So you are definitely lower lying, more humid soil. I actually adore wines from Combot, but probably it's right that it's a really good Premier Cru rather than Grand Cru. And the other explanation in the past was that at the time of uh, making the Grand Cru's, all the owners of Combot lived in Maurice Saint-Denis and not in Chauvry Chambertin, which may or may not be true. You've got the Premier Cru's which lie just under Grand Cru's here, which tend to be on a shallower uh, soil and they make uh, quite supple wines. There is a bit more depth of flavour, a bit more character than a lot of the village wines, but they're not frontline Premier Cru's from here yeah, on I go and Champitinoa. Uh, Cats just joined me, hope you won't jump on the screen, uh, up around to Le Corbeau. Um, decent but not spectacular. We've got Bel Air here, which goes back up into the forest, definitely cool, so as a cooler area, uh, might do well. Uh, in the future, and of course it's next door to Rouchot Champotin, just above Champotin Clos de Bez, so yeah. could be interesting. Part of that's Premier Cru, part of it is Village, as it gets too back far up the hill. Fontenay, Champonnet, um, Crepio, uh, these Crepio, Champonnet uh, lower down, Fontenay starts low down and actually comes up 
and the top bit, uh, Claude de Fontenay of Bruno Claire and the Fontenay of Domaine du Gapi, for example, are quite a bit higher up than uh, the bits which are lower down here. Uh, they're not bad at all. And probably, apart from Combat, my favourites are going to be around the Claude uh, uh, Saint-Jacques on either side. So most of us are perfectly happy that Claude Saint-Jacques uh, stays a premier crew, but we acknowledge that it could easily have been a Grand crew. It sells at the same price as most Grand crews. As you know, Rousseau charges more for that than he does for any of his Grand crews, apart from the two top ones. Um, Labo Saint-Jacques, I used to ignore slightly uh, because I felt that it was uh, down at the bottom, it's quite richer soil. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely cooler. There's a noticeable stream of cool air. I mean, we're talking two or three degrees cooler that comes down the Combe de Lavo, funneled down it. Um, but with global warming in 2018, I just loved the wines that came out of this area here. Um, Lavo, Estonel, and so on. Estonel and Poissonneau, they get the cool air from here and they're higher on the slope. There's an oddity with Estonel. Um, I don't know if you've got that picture to hand, Scott, but we've got a little pic. Um, if you just share it briefly for a second, of the top of Estonel Saint-Jacques, um, where somebody has pulled back a little bit of the, here, here we are. Uh, they've cut back into the hillside. They checked the map, discovered that the Appalachian would allow them to go a bit higher up than they had gone. And they're gonna plant that up. The Appalachian only allows them to plant Pinot, but frankly, Look at the colour of that soil. That's a really white soil. And it would be really nice in white. And I remember Pierre-Henri Gaget of uh, Louis Chateau saying that they used to have about 20% white grapes, a hangover from a previous period, in their Estenel Saint-Jacques. When they replanted, they replanted only with Pinot, and he felt that the wine became less good as a result of that. Um, and if you continued on round into Poissonneau, uh, where the main Umber, uh, this, I think, is, is probably uh, Charmagne, Dwayne Henri Magne. Uh, and next door, there's a bit that's been planted um, by Dwayne Umber. Uh, but I know that um, Charmagne, if he were allowed to, would enjoy to plant whites there. Okay, let's go back to the Gevray map, if we may. Um, Ilya wants to know the difference between Lavo Saint-Jacques and Clos Saint-Jacques today. Well, Clos Saint-Jacques is special because of its uh, south and east um, showing. And of course, uh, Clos Saint-Jacques has got three soil types as you go up and down, and everybody has got holdings that go all the way up and down. Lavo Saint-Jacques also will have differences in the soil as you go up. It's flatter at the bottom, slightly deeper soil. Um, and, um, uh, uh, but the rows also mostly, not everybody's, mostly go a long way up. I remember um, uh, Cyril Rousseau said that they always try and do the Lavo Saint-Jacques in the morning because if they start working there after lunch at picking time and you just keep going up the row and you never see the end of the row and you get very demoralized. So it tends to be picked on the last morning of their, of their harvest. It does remain a cooler harvest. I remember Denis Morte telling me that uh, a cooler vineyard, but in 2003, that's an incredibly hot year, he still chapterized his Lavo Saint-Jacques because it's always the last to be picked and was always the least right. If we continue around the other side, I really enjoyed Castier, Castier, if you pronounce it uh, closer together. And that's a vineyard that's been good for quite a while, but we are, we're getting sunnier here. We're east facing Castier, Castier, Combon One, uh, all of those, um, they're making lovely wines already. They don't quite come into the category of things where the global warming could take them even further. 
I'll just mention Goulot and Champo. Uh, Champo gets a little bit of love because many people who have love of Saint-Jacques, some of the famous names also have Champo. Not many people think of Goulot, set back a little bit, a couple of parcels of vineyards stuck in small quarries, as is true of Combine One as well. Um, but I've had beautiful Goulot recently from Florence Heristine and from her grapes made by Benjamin Leroux. Um, and of course, Jean-Marie Fourier also has it. Um, so that's a, a name that's never really been on everybody's lips, but is well worth uh, looking out for. So Gervais Chambertin, maybe at some point or other, things for global warming could start to affect some of the vineyards down here. Uh, if it does, then I think it might be more likely to be Griot, Chapelle, and the Premier Cruise along here. Chambertin and Claude Bear is a little bit cooler with the forest right behind them. Uh, there's a bit more soil in La Tricière, Charme Chambertin, Mezzi Chambertin. Um, Richard Chambertin is very little soil, but again, it's a tiny bit cooler. They should be all right. But the big gain is up in, in, in this area here. Um, uh, I think up in Lavo Saint-Jacques. Uh, and those other vineyards close by. So that's my feeling for Chambertin. Otherwise, there's uh, a lot that's happening in um, the detail of all the producers that's going on. So I did a little bit of delving um, because the problem with something like this is you, you mention all the producers that you, uh, you know and then you find you've, you've forgotten somebody who really should be up there in the front line. So number one for everybody, and uh, they used to be wonderfully cheap. Now they have had to put their um, uh, prices up a bit. But of course, Domaine Rousseau is the grand classic. And maybe in the top category, certainly in the secondary market, they've perhaps been joined by Domaine Fourier under the stewardship of Jean-Marie Fourier. Um, and he has made some really quite extraordinary wines. Um, so... Uh, my problem here, reason I'm hesitating, is every time we say, and the new superstar is, then uh, the prices suddenly start going up and the secondary market takes over. Perhaps one of the things that will come out of the current crisis is that there will be less excitement uh, and in secondary markets, less people. I suppose I don't mind people paying lots of money if they're buying it in order to drink it, but I always get upset when people are buying for speculative reasons. It's not why the producer made the wine in the first place. Uh, close behind those two, uh, I personally think that Arno Morte, both Domaine Denis Morte and the lookout for wines coming under his own name too, which are separate vineyards. Uh, it's not a, it has a status of negociant, but actually they're vineyards that they run, but they, they weren't the family vineyards. They've come in from different sources, so they're under a different label. And intriguingly, there's a Lavo Saint-Jacques made as Domaine Denis Morte and a Lavo Saint-Jacques made as Arno Morte and he deliberately makes them slightly differently, uh, puts more stems in one than the other um, <clears throat> uh, to make the difference. But personally, I think he's a great talent, and I have preferred his wines to what his father made, even though from 93 through to his sad death in 05, Denis Morte did make spectacular wines. He wanted to make lighter and finer and more elegant wines, but every improvement he made just seemed to make them richer, and that uh, must have been a frustration for him. Admire what he did, but Arno, I think, has got a finer touch. Then you've got the two members of the Dugas family, Dugas and Dugas P, both of whom benefit from having really, really good, great material. Um, 
And uh, uh, Claude Dugas said to me one day that he wants to have as many bunches of grapes as his neighbours. Uh, so it's not when small yield by not having many bunches of grapes, but he wants his bunches to be smaller. He's got the right material to do it. And um, also uh, on the um, uh, Dugas P side, they made very similar uh, comments. I did find in the early days of the fame of Dugapi that I thought the wines were a little bit over-extracted and I found that they dried a bit with age. But I think now that the San Loic has taken over and uh, just fine-tuned what he's doing, I'm feeling that the wines are becoming that little bit suppler and perhaps more age-worthy. Uh, so they're up there as contenders. A couple who are long-term classics but never want to be in the limelight uh, don't have that many of the really top vineyards. They both have incredibly old vines in Charm Chambata. You're probably way ahead of me. Uh, we're talking about Denis Bachelet and Joseph Ritti here. Um, they remain established classics. I would say that Denis Bachelet's wines have become uh, a little bit more, I won't say extracted, but they are a little bit more tannic than they used to be when I knew them in the, in the 80s. Um, but they have a just unbelievable intensity and um, a hedonistic uh, <coughs> perfume to them. And one of you is having a Gervais Vien tonight, and that's a, a, a great favorite of mine. Um, Rising Star, and I mentioned him through his village vineyards, uh, but he's also got micro amounts of um, um, <coughs> Griot Chambertin, for example, uh, a little bit more Electricia Chambertin, and he's got a good holding of Lavo Saint Jacques, including some ancient vines from the 1920s, which he bottles apart is uh, Pierre Durocher, and uh, his pricing from the domain has gone up, secondary market's gone up a bit. He's not yet in Fourier territory, but um, you are having to pay more of a premium, and I do think his wines are good. I thought he was uh, absolutely outstanding in 2018. <coughs> yep. um, then we have other names who are very good indeed. Uh, some of them are bigger estates, um, they're not especially changing in price in the secondary market, but they are getting a good price for their wines and they deserve to. There are the cousins, um, there's uh, Jean-Louis Trappé and his cousins at Rossignol Trappé. They've both been bound in America for a long time. They both have big holdings of Chambertin, plus also Latricia Chambertin and Chapelle Chambertin and some good Premier Cruz. Um, the Trappé wines have, have are in a, in a sort of explosive, um, becoming more natural style, Rossignol Trappé, also biodynamic, also a whole bunch, uh, but a little bit more in a, in, a, in a more classical reference. Both those domains are really, really good wines. Drone La Rose, uh, also with the sun having taken over. Uh, Nicola, I think, um, I really love their 2017s. As it happens, I don't think 2018 suited them so much. Uh, I'd like to retaste those wines from, from bottled samples. But in general, that's a domain uh, that's got really good vineyard holdings and is well worth uh, watching. Um, <clears throat> uh, who else have I got on my list? Um, we've got uh, Christian Serafin. Now his niece, Frédéric, taking over, but she's kept the same style. It's pretty powerful wines, but you really have to wait for those. Sylvie Emmenin, who makes the best uh, value uh, of the Clos Saint-Jacques. Doesn't seem to be interested in putting the price up enormously. It's a slightly controversial style because there's plenty of new wood uh, from her partner Dominique Laurent uh, and lots of lots of whole bunch. It's uh, it's quite an extravagant style. 
but it tames uh, very well later on, and her VAV is extremely good value. Philippe Charlapin, uh, who absolutely rode to fame in the uh, US, was hugely appreciated there. Uh, for some reason, never really caught on in the UK. Um, and uh, I'd also look out, however, if you liked his vines, his son, Jan Charlapin, has set up his own domain. He originally bought David Clark's domain in Murray, and has, uh, but has now moved to uh, uh, Philippe Charlapin's old house in the main drag. There he is, and if you know Philippe Charlapin, you will realize that Jan Charlapin is definitely his son. There's no, no funny business going on there. And uh, that's Jan in his, uh, uh, the cellar he's taken over in Chevrochamatan. Okay, thanks for that. Let me go back to the map. Um, other classic names, uh, there was what I used to call this street of shame because I thought there was a period in the 70s and 80s when I really didn't like the wines much from any of these domains. And they all had lots of Grand Cru's, huge holdings of Grand Cru's. They all lived in the same street. They were Damois, which has been a lot better for a long time, but you do, like, you do need to like late harvest style wines to appreciate his. He made some really punchy 18s, 15 and a half alcohol, but weirdly enough, they still tasted Dallas. Um, then there was Camus, who grows pretty good grapes, many of which are sold for other people to turn into wine. And uh, I don't know what the reason is, but I have never enjoyed the wines that he's bottled himself. And then there's Ribosso, which again, I felt was very underperforming and has recently been sold um, to Martin Bouygues, who's now a majority shareholder, or his company is. Um, I haven't yet tasted anything in the new regime. I know that there are the de Sorel family who are running Rebel so before remain involved. I don't know what new investments happened and what changes that's on my list to, to go and visit. But we should certainly in, expect something dramatic to come out of Rebel so in the future. Um, then let me um, mention a few uh, youngsters um, who are up and coming, relative youngsters. Um, I think Florence Herrestein is making exciting wine. I mentioned her for the Goudo that she has, a number of other vineyards. She's into uh, phytotherapy, which is when you cure your vines with um, little infusions from different plants. Um, and I thought her 17s were really stylish. Um, I've also, in the last few vintages, immensely appreciated what Charles Magnin, domain Henri Magnin, has been doing. Uh, and he is probably the go-to domain for the Castier, along with Faithfully, have uh, big holdings of it. So they're on the upward path. I've just heard about a domain Guillon, G-U-I-L-L-O-N, but I haven't got there yet. Micro quantities, but people are telling me they're very good. There's a small domain called Pano Perifis. I tasted their wines during the Roi Chambertin tasting uh, last year and thought they came out very well. In November that was, uh, I, I tasted the um, Somebody's 18s then, 18s I think. Uh, but again, I haven't yet managed to visit the domain. I will. Uh, René Leclerc, that's moving on a generation. And François Leclerc is making some wines under his own name and I think under the René Leclerc label. And I particularly enjoyed what I tasted of his 18s under his own label. So that's one to look out for. And that again will be a good range Grand Cru Village Premier Cru. Uh, and Alexandrine Roy, um, R-O-Y. Uh, also, mostly, I think it's village chivalry there, but uh, she's getting a great reputation. And so many more I could mention is Armand Chefois, Géante, Umber, somebody asked about. Um, 
who uh, wines are good and competent, but I do find that there's a little bit of a house style uh, the same. There are the Berger boys who took over from their father, Alain, and indeed a cousin of theirs, Nicolas. Um, there are Lucien Boyau, that's Pierre Boyau, who's brother of uh, Louis Boyau in, uh, in, now in Chambord. Uh, there's the other Morte, Thierry Morte. I liked his 18s because I used to find his wines fractionally undernourished, but with the greater uh, warmth, uh, they came into their own. Uh, various members of the Marchand family, of which my preferred one was Marchand Griot, and they've got an extraordinary cuvee of Champerrier from over 100 year old vines, which I thought was wonderful. Um, and several more. Sega, I need to go back and taste again. Trape uh, Rochelande, another offshoot of the trapes. I don't know uh, what sort of um, relationship. That's 50 plus domains in Chauvet Chambertin, so we don't just have to go back to Rousseau every time. Ah, uh, yes, David has mentioned Rene Bouvier. I mentioned the Bouvier estate when I talked about uh, uh, Marcenet, but uh, and they do, of course, have vineyards here in, in Chauvet as well. Grand. Um, I think most of the formal questions we have actually covered. Uh, just, oh yeah, someone's asked, Mark's asked, I'm not familiar with Combat. Is there a particular affordable grower? Ha ha ha, no. You would recommend. Uh, all Combats are quite expensive. Uh, Dujac have the most brilliant one. Um, and uh, let me think. Um, so many people actually. It's, uh, there's a tiny bit from both Trappe, which I think goes into a Premier Cru blend, a tiny bit from Rossignol Trappe that tends not to get exported. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, this is, I know, uh, um, I does Ori Mania have it? Uh, I shall have to look up if I can do that while I'm talking. Um, my, my brain is not sufficiently engaged to have remembered everybody, but I will look up even as we speak um, and find that out for you. Who else has got one? But nobody is offering their um, uh, combots uh, cheaply because it's understood that it is a, uh, one of the special Premier Cruise. Um, let's see if I can find my list of combots. The biggest holder is Dujac, then there's Pierre Amio, uh, Le Roi of combots. How could I forget that? But the main Le Roi, don't think that's going to come into the category. Arlo Perefis, Georges Lignier, Demet de Beaumont, David Dubon, Rossignol Trappé, Marchand Frère. Uh, those in descending order of volume are the uh, producers in Combat. Grand. Um, so I am going to, we, we have another 10 minutes officially to run. I don't mind if we are overrun by a few minutes but I'm probably going to leave Chevrolet there if you're happy that I've, I've covered uh, what was of interest for you. Um, on we will go. And we will move next door into Maurice Saint-Denis. Remembering, of course, that in pre-Appalachian days, an awful lot of Maurice would have been sold to Chevrolet Chambertin or as Chambon Musigny. And it's still a village which has uh, a little bit of difficulty establishing itself in the marketplace. Um, between its, its, its better-known friends on either side. Um, now, you can see here, running across the band that goes all the way across uh, in that light purple colour, which is where the Grand Cru's are. A tiny bit of Bonmar got left over in Maurice Um I'm frustrated that they drew the boundary there because it would have just been cleaner to have had it all in one village or the other. 
But I will say that I think the style of Bonmar is much more Maurice Andenis style than it is Chambon Misny style. Then Clédetat, Monopoly, Clédilombre, Monopoly, almost. A little vegetable garden there has been replanted with a handful of vines belonging to Topin Mam. So, then Close Saint-Denis, now bigger than its original size, Clé de la Roche, now bigger than its original size. So they follow on, and if you moved across from the lower part of Clé de la Roche, that bit that's cut out of it would be the Premier Cru Combat from, uh, from Chevrolet. Right, so uh, you know, I wouldn't mind expanding Maurice Saint-Denis and allowing them to have Combat as well, and allowing them to have Mazoyer, Champetain, and allowing them to have Bonmar, but it's not going to happen. Um, the other thing is that the premier crews are all very small in size. The biggest one is still under five hectares. And as a result of that, there isn't anyone that's big enough um, to have established itself as a brand out there in the marketplace. They're often split between lots of different producers and quite a lot of producers just to a blended Moray premier crew. A couple that you will have come across are um, uh, Mont Louison up here because of Ponce's white wine. Um, especially, uh, and also La Boussière because of Rumier's Clé de La Boussière. La Boussière is a monopoly with the family house uh, in the middle of it. You may also have seen Faconnière, Milan, the Chaffaut, various others. But I don't think many people in their own mind have got an understanding for what those individual vineyards can do. Well, the good news is that our friend, uh, the geologist Françoise Venier, has been doing her magic work along with a pedologist uh, as, as well, um, in uh, drawing up maps of the soil. Uh, they were asked to do this, commissioned to do this by the syndicat of Maurice Saint-Denis. They've got results back. They're planning to do uh, a sort of a special day with various journalists um, to show you all the maps, go and look at the soils, they dug holes, they can show what the different features are. And out of this, I hope we will start to see the possibilities of more individual personalities coming out of the different Premier Crews. And that's what Maurice Saint-Denis needs to do to get itself back on the map. It also needs to start talking about its own character, um, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, we, we make wines which are as fine as Chambon Musnier and as structured as Chevrolet Chambertin, uh, which is, tends to be how they describe themselves. Um, you will see that there are actually two bands of um, uh, Premier Crews. Um, that you've got the ones which are above, um, sorry, a village, Marie um, Saint-Denis. You've got the ones which are above the Grand Crews, which are much cooler and typically on white marl. So you will see some white grapes planted up in Montlouison, in uh, La Vidode, uh, it's got some whites. On Rue de Vergy, it's got some whites as well as reds. And they work very well. Uh, this is not a case of people saying, I just can't sell my Moray Red, let's plant some whites. Uh, those ones up there um, do justify, I think, having uh, white grapes planted and the wines are, are, are quite lively. One or two bits of whites planted down below, but it's less obvious that that's white wine territory. Um, <clears throat> so what's happening in the village in terms of producers? Uh, Dujac, they happen to be my um, very good uh, friends and uh, they now have such a strong hand of Grand Cru's <coughs> all over the place. They've got tiny bits of Chambertin, Romy Saint-Vivant. They've got uh, big bits of Clos de la Roche, Clos Saint-Denis, Bon Bonmar, Cham Chambertin. Uh, what else have I? Um, uh, Jeremy will be on the phone in a second telling me what I've left out. 
but that's already uh, quite a good uh, handful of Grand Crus. They've got Combat, they've got Von Romanet Melkensor, um, Von Romanet Beaumont, uh, a whole host of things. So they're up there in my top category. Ponceau is a great classic name, of course, the sort of family ructions. Um, some people think that the really great era for Ponceau is in the 1980s. We did the tasting in Hong Kong, which bore out how brilliant those wines were. And the, particularly the Clos La Roche 1980 is a little bit of a legend. But the 83 is such a difficult vintage, were really good. The 85 is magnificent, so were the 88s. Um, anyway, Laurent Ponceau has gone off to do his own thing, and I've loved his early vintages. And his sister, Rosemarie Ponceau, with um, professional technical uh, director and a vineyard person and so on, uh, has, has taken control at the family domain, Ponceau, is not trying to change things too much. Uh, and it'll be really interesting to see how these, um, these first vintages work out for her and her team. Peromino is making some pretty amazing wines. They are quite expensive. Uh, a few Grand Cru's from Chauvet-Champetain are actually from Purchase Grapes, uh, but plots where he more or less controls, and most importantly is able to choose the picking date. Um, uh, but apart from that, he's got uh, his own domain, Chauvet-Champetain, Masbrayer-Champetain, an extraordinary Nuit Saint-Georges, Richemont, and a brilliant uh, Chambon-Musigny, uh, um, Comme d'Orbeau. Um, but I would pick him out as being top. His cousins over the road, Topno, Moam, are now extremely good as well. Um, you can argue either way. You've got three members of the extended Lignier family. Hubert Lignier, classic in the time of the father. His son, Romain, before his, his, his tragic early death, also was really good. Then very slight interruption while I worked out where to go next. And other son, Laurent Lignier, came back from, I think, 2011. And what he's doing now is, again, world-class. Um, Georges Lignier, I felt, hasn't been as good. Uh, I think there have been some improvements recently. Still got further to go, but they're not in the same price range at all. And then um, Lignier Michelot, Virgil Lignier Michelot, is making some lovely, lovely wines too. Um, Domain Arlo, um, the brothers and sister who, who does the horse plowing, but Cyprien Arlo is the one more or less in charge. Um, Certified Biodynamic, uh, some very smart wines there, and he's been in charge of the project of getting the vineyards mapped out. Um, somebody else who helps in a number of these projects is Jerome Castanier, who's making wines with immediate impact. Um, Claude Saint-Denis, Claude Laroche, Chambre Chambertin, Claude Boucher. They're quite dark-colored uh, wines, quite powerful. Uh, I'm always struck by them, tasting them um, young in the cellar. Also, there's a range of some super generics, three different generics, which I like. And uh, we'll need to wait and see exactly how they age, whether or not they aren't a little bit chunky. Uh, but uh, they're, very, they're very good value at the moment, well worth looking at. Um, an old established classic uh, kept under the radar. So perhaps I shouldn't mention the name, but I think many of you will know it anyway. Jouan uh, now moved down from Father Henri Jouan to Saint Philippe. Um, but it's a small domain and not much seen in, uh, quite a bit goes to the States, I think, not much seen in the UK and many other export markets, but a, a light and fine uh, style. Those of you who used to like the um, wines of Jackie Trousseau, it's in that style there. And uh, of course, I need to um, mention Cécile Tremblay, uh, whose wines are also joining the secondary market uh, high prices. Uh, alas, always sorry to see that. Um, 
she um, uh, knows very much what she's doing. Uh, it's got a lovely, or rather, although rather sadly rather small winery, which is going to have to increase in size because she gets some more vineyards back, family vineyards um, from other members of her extended family in, I think, 20, 2022, a couple of years' time. So um, uh, those are mostly the people in Maurice saint uh, I haven't mentioned any of the Magnas, Stéphane Magna, uh, took over from father uh, Jean-Paul, and also on the, on the main road, Michel Magna, complete turnaround from having made wines which had a certain amount of new oak, but always tasted very, very oaky. Now he's gone biodynamic and is no new oak at all. Everything is put into amphoras. I found it a bit strange that somebody could switch so dramatically from a, a sort of rather, in those days, modern style with the oak to amphorae. Uh, but the wines have benefited from that. And gosh, I'm sure I've forgotten other people. Um, there are the Amios, uh, Raffae. Um, I used to buy a tiny bit of wine from um, grandfather Raffae. Um, uh, Jean Raffae, then it's Gérard still there and uh, his very talented daughter Marion is getting involved. Uh, and then there is uh, Chantal Remy where you can go and buy old vines. Oof, um, I've, I've had my hour uh, and I think I, I've covered most of the ground I wanted to cover. I don't think Maurice Denis. I can't immediately see big changes that are going to happen in this uh, village from the global warming. When we get to Chambon, Musny and other uh, in another week's time. In fact, I haven't decided yet we're either going to do Chambon Musnier and the rest of the Côte de next week or save that up for um, the 4th of July and head to the Côte de Bone next week. Uh, but I hope that that's, that's been of interest and has covered lots of ground. Um, I think I've managed to talk uh, about most of your questions. Somebody did pop up one about Vougeray and their vines up in this area. But my favourite vineyard of theirs of all is the Chambon, uh, sorry, not Chambon Musnier, it's the Champ Chambotin, Les Masoyers, because it's 80 to 100 year old vines and that really, really helps. So yes, Miriam, we will do Pomar, uh, perhaps next week. In fact, I think let's go that way next week. Let's do the reds of the Côte de Bone next week, just to give us enough change. And after that, we will have reds of the Southern Côte de Nuit and also whites of the Côte de Bone. And then maybe we'll look at Chablis or the Macnay and places like that. So stay well, join me on the other BAT channel, on the 67 Palmel channel on Thursday. Any of you who've joined in and don't currently subscribe to our um, Justin Morris Inside Burgundy website, then please do. Uh, otherwise, I shall um, sign off and see you next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>